Hi, I'm Mike Asinald and welcome to the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge's AC23 Plus Artist Legacy Series podcast. This is a series where we talk to artists who are doing amazing things in the areas of the arts, including performance, education, production, as well as arts advocacy. We record this series in the Virginia and John Nolan Black Box Studio, as well as in the Jan and Bill Grimes Recording Studio here at the Cary Siraj Community Arts Center. Be sure to visit artsbr.org for more information on all the great things we are doing here at the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. Hope you enjoyed the podcast series, and thanks for tuning in. All right, well, I'd well like to welcome our listeners and viewers to our AC23 Plus podcast series put on here at the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. And today I have the distinct pleasure of talking to master musician, Latin percussionist, Mr. Bobby Sanabria. Bobby, it's great to have you, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. And it's Sanabria. Sanabria. <laughs> Don't worry. Everybody mispronounces Leonard Bernstein's name. And when I met uh, uh, Jamie Bernstein, his, one of his daughters, yeah. and uh, because we did a project called West Side Story Reimagined that was nominated for a Grammy yeah. back in 2019 and won the Jazz Journalist Association Album of the Year. She goes, I made the mistake of say, saying Bernstein. Bernstein, and she goes, it's Bernstein. Just remember Frankenstein, you know? <laughs> so I, I, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, you know, there's a funny joke um, where the singer is auditioning for the, the Broadway show, and she gets up, and she starts singing about, uh, you say tomato, I say tomato, you say tomato, or uh, you say tomato, and he's like, miss, I, th I think you got this all wrong. Uh, Miss Bernstein, would you like to try this again? So it's Bernstein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so um, you guys are doing a concert tonight. Yes, yes. Here in Baton Rouge at the Manship Theater. And uh, now the group that you're working with tonight, it, it's, it's Bobby Sanabria right. with Ascension. Ascension. In Spanish, it would be Ascension. In, in English, it would be Ascension. It's spelled the same, but when we, when we write it in Spanish... We put an accent over the O. Now, what is that instrumentation different than, uh, or what is the instrumentation? Tonight? Well, it, it's uh, it's an octet. Sometimes it's a nonet. Sometimes it's a tentet. But the uh, and it's different, obviously, than my multiverse big band, mm -hmm. uh, which is five saxes, four trumpets, four trombones, piano, bass. I'm on the drums. A lot of people know me for my Latin percussion work, but my real voice. I always say and my main instrument is the drum set. Mm -hmm. And I apply all that knowledge that I know to the drum set. Bass, uh, and then there's two percussionists, a conga player, a bongo player, and a hand percussionist as well, plus a flute and piccolo specialist, plus an electric violinist, and three singers. So that's 20, that's a kind of monstrosity. It's 24 musicians. It's called the Multiverse Big Band. Right. And our right. latest recording, this one, is once again nominated for a Grammy. So we'll find out on February 4th. Two if we weeks. Win. Two weeks yeah. from now. Huh? So, but Ascension is basically four horns. And myself on drums, a conga player, bass, piano. Mm -hmm. The four horns are alto, tenor, trumpet, and trombone. Yeah. So in a sense, it's a mini big band, kind right. of a right. 
but it harkens back to Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, mm -hmm. that kind of a sound. But uh, obviously, we use Afro-Latin rhythms, not just Cuban rhythms, but Brazilian rhythms, Venezuelan rhythms. Right. At the concert tonight, we'll be actually playing a piece that uses a Venezuelan rhythm known as Joropo, okay. which is very interesting because it's, you can notate it in three-quarter time, but you can notate it also in six-eight time. Right. So the basic pulse of it, as most people know, a European waltz is one, two, three, one, two, three, and a jazz waltz is similar, but more syncopated and, of course, swinging. Right. Right. So. Right. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. That's the basic syncopation of Horopo. Yeah. So it's a lot funkier. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, it's, and it uses maracas uh, it's in its purest form. The only percussion instrument is maracas, and they use a different type of maraca that you than we would use in uh, Cuban or Puerto Rican music. Sm very small, mm -hmm. and it, artic it can articulate very precisely. Right. So it, it can sound like the, it can sound like with the it can articulate with the clarity of like a snare drum. So it's very interesting when you see it in its pure form. Anybody that wants to check it out, go to YouTube and look up. Joropo, J-O-R-O-P-O, -O, mm -hmm. Venezolano or Venezuelan Joropo, and they'll see groups. They use a harp. They use a guitar. Right. And uh, in the 60s, this gentleman, Frank El Pavo Hernandez, El Pavo, the turkey, that was his nickname, great drummer, mm -hmm. he adapted that style to the drum set. And first recordings of it I heard were, was – were with my old boss, Mongo Santa Maria, the great conga player. Because wow. he played Joropo jazz tunes. Why? Because Frank was his drummer. He had migrated or immigrated from Venezuela to New York City. And he mm -hmm. was a great timbala player, too. Right, right. So, so those are some of the guys that I listened to when I was, when I was young. Uh, Willie Bobo, another great. Right, right. William, a.k.a. his real name was William Correa. He was... New Yorican like me, <clears throat> a New Yorican, somebody who's of Puerto Rican descent, born and raised in the city. Uh, he was raised in El Barrio, which is East Harlem in New York City from 96 all the way to 125th Street, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, uh, Park, Madison, 5th Avenue. Yeah. So that's the Puerto Rican enclave, or was the, the main Puerto Rican enclave. And then from there, the original Puerto Rican enclave in New York City was South Brooklyn, hmm. near the docks, right. and what's known as Los Sures, the south, and also Red Hook, where the docks were. They migrated to East Harlem. Then finally they migrated to the South Bronx, where I was born and raised. Hmm. So Willie was from Spanish Harlem. I call him an SOB, a son of El Barrio, you know. That's what that <laughs> area is called. And he was uh, one of the people that I admired and looked up to and modeled myself after because he was a legitimate jazz drummer, but he was a legitimate j Latin percussionist. He could play conga, bongo, and the Afro-Cuban style, and he was an incredible timbala player, too, as a soloist with Cal Jader's group, the Vibest. And he played eight years with Tito Puente, bongo. Mm -hmm. So Maestro Puente was a great jazz drummer, too, but in the swing style. Right, right. Willie, because that's, Tito was born 1923 in Spanish Harlem. So he's, his he, said, he would always say in interviews, my hero was Gene Krupa. So where Willie's heroes 
with Max Roach and the drummers, the other drummers of the day, Roy Haynes, et cetera. Yeah. And in fact, him and Roy Haynes were buddies. Is that right? I think that if you listen to Roy Haynes, especially he used to tune, he tuned the snare drum very high. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. he got that from Willie, you know, an influence from Willie. You know, the first time I ever heard Willie was there was an early Herbie Hancock record called Inventions and Dimensions. One of my favorite albums. I yeah. love that album. And it, I think uh, Paul Chambers is playing bass. That's right. And I what caught my ear, obviously, I mean, everybody's phenomenal on the album, but just, you, you know, Herbie's swinging, and then you right. got Willie doing his thing, and I, I just never heard it put, it put together like that. There's only really, yeah, there's only really one Latin tune with the Afro-Cuban mambo feel on it, the first tune, Jackrabbit. Mm -hmm. The rest of it, he's swinging on the drums. Yeah, there's, 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 a couple tune, of, there's one tune that, that he plays in six, eight meter. Yeah, yeah. Know, what we call bembe. Willie's playing some brushes on there too. Chihuahua Martinez, Osvaldo Chihuahua Martinez is the hand percussionist on mm -hmm. it. Yeah. But other than that, Willie is swinging and Charles Tolliver told me, Charles Tolliver played in Willie's band. He goes, you know, Willie never got the credit as a jazz drummer. He was a great jazz drummer. And the reason Willie's on that album, Herbie told me, because Miles recommended him. Is that right? Because Herbie asked him, who should I get for drums? He go, get, you know, get Willie because he could go different places that you want to go to. Because Willie had played with Mongo Santa Maria. Yeah. So Willie could do that. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Charles told me that when the record came out, everybody thought it was Philly Joe Jones. On it. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, when they were so really surprised. But the roots of that, if you hear the Cal Jader Quintet, from the late 50s to the early, about 60, 61. Willie was in that band, and as you know, Cal would play Latin-oriented mm -hmm. jazz tunes, either Brazilian or Afro, with Afro-Cubans, and then they'd swing. Right. And Willie is, you know, swinging on those tunes. He's the one playing drums. So Willie learned a lot from Tito, learned a lot from Cal, who was a great drummer too. Right. And the rest is history. So those were a couple of my heroes growing up, and then Buddy Rich, and it's Max Roach's Centennial. Mm -hmm. um, there's some Maxisms in, in, in my playing. Art Blakey is a big influence on me, too. Yeah. I do a press roll thing that, that was inspired by, by Art Blake. It's my own thing. You'll see me do it. When I do it, you'll smile, yeah. cause I do, but it's different. It's my own thing. Yeah. People ask me how I do it all the time, and I, sometimes I'll show them, but right. uh, I'm from the old school. Just watch, man. <laughs> well, I'm out of you watching and listening intently tonight. Um, I have a question for you. I've always been curious because I know um, when you're playing set in the Latin style, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so much of that is in a simulation of what normally would be done outside of the drum set, various percussion instruments. Right. Am I right in saying that? Yes or no. I mean, because it depends on the situation. If you're playing by yourself, like with, I have a quartet called Quarteto Ache, which is the Yoruba word for positive energy. Mm. When I'm playing in that situation, I'm simulating what the percussion would do along with the timbales right. or anything else. Right. And, and if it's a Brazilian tune, all the different percussion instruments used in Brazilian music in that field. If I'm playing with a percussionist, then I'm using the vocabulary of the timbales adapted to the drum set, but 
I have to stay out of the way of the conga players. That's so where my question was. Like, how do you adapt when you have – you're playing set. Right. But you have the percussion instruments. Well, I wouldn't be imitating conga parts or anything like that on the drum set. I'd be complimenting what the conga player does. Right. And I'm using vocabulary from the timbales, obviously. And some vocabulary from another instrument that we use in a standard setup, like, for example, for your viewers in a salsa orchestra, mm -hmm. contemporary salsa orchestra, which is basically, when people ask me what is salsa, I say it's Cuban music, the way we play it in New York. Right. The way the Puerto Rican community plays it. It's right. Afro-Cuban music. Yeah. Salsa for us is just a marketing term. That's mm -hmm. all. Because at post-Castro, you can even say the word Cuba on the radio. People would say Latin music and Spanish radio, you know, Spanish-speaking radio. Or they say Musica de la Cuatro, which means music from the four. I remember asked when I heard the DJ on Radio Wado, which is the oldest continuously run Spanish-speaking radio station in New York City. I asked my father, what does la cuatro mean? Mm. The f I know what it means, the four, mm. but what does the guy mean? He goes, la cuatro, C-U-B-A. Cuba. Uh, he can't say Cuba on the... On the <laughs> <laughs> so it was code. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, man, the anti-Cuban sentiment was big. <clears throat> but um, getting back to the, what you asked, you know, I'll use vocabulary also from the bell patterns that the, the bongo player plays in a salsa orchestra. You have the triumvirate of congas, timbales, and bongo in a contemporary salsa orchestra, which was a thing that, from a historical perspective, started with the Machito Afro-Cubans. They were the first band to use that triumvirate hmm. of percussion instruments, and that's a new, they did it in New York. In Cuba, in the early, in the late, up until the late 30s uh, and early 40s, if you had a big band in Cuba, you use a player playing, a person playing timbales and or drums, and a bongo player, no right. conga. In a, Conjunto, which is just trumpets and rhythm, you'd use a conga player and a bongo player, no timbales. In a charanga orchestra, which is a Cuban band with flute and violins, just timbales and conga mm -hmm. and the, the guiro. The, the, in the conjunto, what I mentioned before with the trumpets would be the maracas right. and or guiro. But the guiro is very essential, the scraped instrument yeah. for yeah. charanga. So finally in New York City, all three instruments come together, conga, bongo, and timbales with the Machiro Orchestra. Yeah. So they, they have to be given credit for that. And they have to be given credit, too, for really being the fathers of Afro-Cuban jazz. I know jazz historians watching this are good. I thought it was Dizzy Gillespie with Manteca. <laughs> but Dizzy would tell you right away, he did, no, I didn't start that. That was the Machiro Afro-Cubans. They were the first ones to use jazz arranging technique right. and jazz soloists right. with piano deteriorated Cuban rhythms. It had been hit to that in Cuba before them with o other orchestras, but uh, most notably Donas Piazzu's Havana Casino Orchestra and others, but they didn't really have access to pure jazz soloists like we do in New York City. Mm -hmm. And it's only natural that it happened in New York because New York is a port city like New Orleans. Right, right. So everything comes together in port yeah, cities. Melting pot. So there you go. Um, so that's why that happened. Right. And uh, so I'm using all that vocabulary. And then we talk, that's just Cuban rhythms. When we talk about Brazilian rhythms right. or Venezuelan rhythms like Joropo that I mentioned before, cumbia, 
which is a Colombian rhythm. There's a myriad number of things that I have access to. And because I'm a percussionist too, I know how to, as Carlos said, <laughs> beautifully says, I know how to mix the eggs, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so a question for you when, okay, so you're putting together the album, uh, Vox Humana. And right. You're behind the set, but you have percussionists. Does that, does it, is that, because you're operating at such a high level and all the musicians are so, um, just so good at what they do. Do y'all, are y'all even discussing who's doing what or it just falls into place? Sometimes, but sometimes. Like I'll tell the guys uh, on the bridge of this, the percussion, on the bridge of this tune, go to the bell, to the bongo play, go to the bell, here, stand. Okay. But they know what to do because they're very experienced. I'm very lucky. I have two of the greatest young percussionists not in, only in New York, but in the world. Oreste Abrante is a, a conga player who you'll see tonight. He's also a great vocalist. Mm -hmm. And he's a very good reader as well. And Matthew Gonzalez, Ambongo, he also is an expert on the Afro-Puerto Rican percussion, which is different than Afro-Cuban. And Matthew is interesting because he's a great dancer oh. too. And he's a great reader as well. And that makes my life easier because when we do rehearsals, some of the things that we do are complex rhythmically, and I have to, with breaks and everything, what we call in the music, cierres. Mm -hmm. Cierre, it comes from the uh, Spanish word cerrado, which means to close off. It's the equivalent in jazz to what you would see in an arrangement. It says stop time. Yep. Everybody mm -hmm. does the same thing rhythmically. Mm -hmm. So we have things like that in the arrangements, and sometimes cats that are very have very good ears can pick up things fast but time this it slows you down because in rehearsals because they can't read right they have to memorize do it again do it again and we mm -hmm. don't have i don't have time for that we don't have imagine a sax section filled of great soloists but, but they, they don't read. know how to read right yeah so at this yeah. i'm just letting the viewers know for yeah. the young percussionists out there you you need to get your thing together musically as much as the trumpet players saxes trombones, bass, piano, yeah. any other melodic instrument, you have to be able to read in today's world. It'll make you a better musician and you'll get a lot more work. Absolutely. Yeah. The great thing about those, these two young men, they're very much uh, steeped in Afro-Cuban traditions and Afro-Puerto Rican traditions, so I can draw upon that mm -hmm. at will. For example, in Afro-Puerto Rican music, we don't we have two basic African-rooted styles. Bomba, mm -hmm. which is a complex of various rhythms and dances, and plena. Plena is played on these jingleless tambourines called, uh, or frame drums, called panderetas. And we use it as a choir of three of them and a scraped instrument known as guicharo, which is our scraped instrument on the island. It's thinner than a Cuban guiro, and obviously it has a different name. And then the, in the bomba complex, we use these barrel drums made out of oak, hmm. known as barriles de bomba. Hmm. The primo, also known as the requinto, is the high-pitched solo drum. And then the other drums are known as uh, seguidores or seguidoras. Okay. Uh, the, uh, and uh, we have a, we strike a wooden chair or the side of a drum or a, empty whiskey barrel or small mm -hmm. little barrel with sticks known as kwa, and we use a giant maraca. Those, those are the instruments in that style of music. And there's various rhythms, Hollandaise, 
Yuba, Sika, Puembe, Cocobale, there's a whole complex of rhythms. And I can draw upon them when needed or when I <coughs> want to or the arrangers want to with this band. So, so uh, it, it's, uh, and we have other styles of, of music in Puerto Rico, like the elegant danza, which is, you play here in New Orleans, mm -hmm. the contour yeah. dance. Yeah, absolutely. And in Baton Rouge, from the French influence. Yeah. But with clave-driven rhythm. So, it's funny because uh, there's a rhythm known as sica. It's the most common bomba rhythm. And it was adapted to dance band performance first by a great Puerto Rican percussionist, Rafael Cortijo, in the 1950s. There's various qua patterns, stick patterns that you can use. You can use one, two, three, four, which is a rhythm very prominent in New Orleans mm -hmm. music. You could use, or you could use, and underneath it's going. Now I want to ask you about that rhythm because that's what we call the tresillo, which is just it's it's the three side of the two three two clave, right? Yeah, but repeated over and over again. Right, and it's called tresillo because it's three notes. So. Uh, we, we talk about that rhythm, or we obviously use that rhythm a lot down here. Of course, yeah. But it's called so many things. Like I've heard, it, I've heard it called a bambula. I've bambula, it, yeah. We yeah. Could, well, we have a rhythm, bomba rhythm in Puerto Rico called bambula. Our rhythms in Puerto Rico are very much uh, prevalent in New Orleans yeah. because of the connection. There was a triangular trade route between uh, Veracruz, Mexico, uh, New Orleans, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. So mm -hmm. they, they we're brothers. Yeah. We, we, right. you know, I remember went and Marcellus said, well, we're cousins. I go, no, we're not cousins. We're <laughs> brothers. We're brothers, bro. And then he, yeah. he goes, yeah, wow, man. You know, when we started talking. So like that, the, the, if I do that tresillo, right? right? And I go like, and I do... Which is one of the qua patterns, and you hear that in Mardi Gras. And yeah. And I'm going to add a backbeat. Yeah. Don't drop the load. Don't drop the load. Hey, pretty mama, don't drop the load. There yeah, you go. Right, right. So you get the beginnings of funk. So yeah. the, the roots of funk are in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. obviously New Orleans. To me, New Orleans is the northernmost Caribbean city. I've heard it described that many times, yeah. yeah. Now, if you talk to a navigator, they go, no, nah, it's part of the Gulf of Mexico, you know, but I'm I culturally, said, no, but the, culturally cult man, you know. Yeah. So uh, uh, we are brothers, rhythmically, yeah. you know, and, and uh, I've been to New Orleans various times, and then mm -hmm. when I hear the, you know, the rhythms played by the drummers, I go, man, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the diaspora mm -hmm. from Africa. It's all connected. Yeah, it's all connected. So we need to get, and that's part of my purpose here today, too, to connect that with yeah. the audience. And we, don't, we have many more things in common than differences. Right. If we could learn that, we've learned that as jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. we, we already know oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We still have a lot of ignorance but it's because of colonialism. You know, we've been kept apart. Mm -hmm. 
So my purpose is to bring everybody together. I do it with my musicians, and I do it with the audience. And, uh, you know, um, that's my main purpose here. I mean, I do it with my quartet, my quartet Oche, with Ascension tonight, with my big band. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's a, a sociopolitical statement, too, it's, it's, it, which is uh, the influence of Max Roach on me. Amen. Every time we go on stage, people don't know it. Any jazz musician that goes up on stage or says that they're a jazz musician, it's a socio-political statement of how we can come together as one. Because yeah, this yeah. music was born from blackness, but it was born from Europeanness too. Right. And it was, and the blackness goes all the way back to the, through the Caribbean, mm -hmm. back to Africa. So that in itself is a socio-political statement if you're conscious enough to like let it if you're open to it. Yeah, and you're yeah. watching, you're listening. And, you, and it, some people get it, some people don't. But that's why we keep going on stage. To right. Until somebody finally goes, a light bulb goes off in there. They go, damn. You know, like well, the guy, the spy boy, uh -huh, uh -huh. the person, you know, with the umbrella, uh -huh, you know, right. in front of, of the, you know, the second the line. line. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Cuba, well, you know, even Puerto Rico when we do our carnivals. Even if they don't get it on a cerebral level, just to feel it, you know. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, sometimes people you get people discussing it. I like when I see people discussing it. I can tell they're talking amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. Or they come up to me and yeah. everything. So uh, especially in the times that we live in now that are so – this country is – is in many ways fractured. Yeah, very polarized. Uh, Sociopolitically, we need the message of jazz in all of its different forms mm -hmm. to to come out as much as possible. Yeah. Um, get into an argument with people. What is jazz? I like Dr. Billy Taylor, the uh, mm -hmm. yeah, great, great pianist, pianist and composer, arranger and band leader. I remember I, so, I saw a program. I saw it on CBS. It was a special that he did called mm -hmm. "This Is Jazz." And the way the program started is he showed there was a montage of film in the beginning, and he's shown people in Africa, this is jazz. Then he's showing people in the Caribbean, this is jazz. Then he shows Elvis Presley mm -hmm. dancing, this is jazz. James Brown dancing, this is jazz. It's all getting up to the different big bands of the 30s and everything. Yeah. And this is jazz, and this is jazz. And I go, I never, and that's that was the beginning of me realizing that that wow we have so many things in common right other than differences now can i ask you about checking out um multiverse and the, the, the big band there's some things that you mentioned it earlier but i kind of want to point on it because when you think big band you typically think yeah the four trumpets four bones five saxes rhythm section but then you you got electric violinist right. flute piccolo um, often vocalist, percussion, uh, but uh, the piccolo, flute piccolo, and the electric violin. How did, where did you get that from? Oh, the electric violin from Don Ellis. Oh, the influence of Don Ellis because I saw. Him is when that I was is that the all white thing? Is that where you're getting that from? No, the all white, uh, us all dressed in white is from the Caribbean. Oh, okay, because he, he would got, do that too. Yeah, yeah, but you know where he got it from? No, he used to play in Cuban bands in L.A. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Latin bands. I didn't know that. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a big fan of Donnell. So yeah, I me love too. Well, I'm glad because I always tell people, I always tell my students, you know, like if you you know, you know you'll find your significant other, you you know you find a soulmate if if they're hip to Don Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love arranging. So I mean, the the, the odd time signatures yeah, and just yeah. the compositions. You know, he is the most unrecognized genius mm, in the history of jazz. He many jazz history courses ignore him. Mm. He was ignored in the Ken Burns documentary series, along with many other people. Um, and uh, I, I have no idea why, because at one time, Don Ellis, every high school and college big band in the 70s was trying to play his music. Yeah. But he was, uh, in case your, your viewers don't know, he was a legitimate ethnomusicologist studying the cultures of India, Brazil, mm -hmm. Cuba, all of Central and South America. And he was fascinated by using, expanding the vocabulary of jazz by with use, u utilizing electronics yeah. as yeah. well. If you've seen the movie The French Connection, that's Don's yeah, you're right. uh, you're right. Grammy yeah. winning uh, score you know, for that. Yeah. And I saw him on PBS when I was a kid. They, they had a special with him uh, from Tanglewood. And he's playing the electrified trumpet. I go, oh, man, what is this dude? And, I, you know, I, I was a young kid. I couldn't understand the meters. Or All I knew was that, that it was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got late, later on fast, more fascinated by him. So I wanted, he used, uh, as you know, like a string quartet or a string mm -hmm. quintet that was electrified in it with his big band. I wanted to incorporate that vibe, sound with mine. And I said, well, I can't use a string quartet, a string quintet. It's just too much. But I can use a, an electric violinist mm -hmm. with pedals, stomp boxes. To, and then the flute piccolo is because uh, I've been a big fan of Quincy Jones arranging. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he uses the flute and piccolo sometimes above the trumpet. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know. Yeah. So and if anybody's not familiar with his work, from an arranging standpoint, just check out the Austin Powers theme, the Soul Bossa Nova. Da, 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 da. Right. But <laughs> da, he uses da, 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 that up, yeah. up on top. Yeah, well, in that, uh, Henry Mancini would do that all the time, too. He's yeah, at that high pickle exactly. Rhythm. Yeah, and I don't know if Quincy got it from Henry or Henry got it from yeah. Quincy. But uh, that that's the, why I, I utilize it. And then Don, you know, the reason Don, if you, anybody has not seen or heard of Don, go to YouTube and check out Don Ellis live at the Montreux Jazz Festival. Hmm. That concert, incredible. Yeah. But uh, Don would used two drum set players, a classical percussionist, and somebody playing congas. Mm -hmm. So he got that from his work with Latin bands in LA, playing mm -hmm. with Latin bands. It's yeah. funny, I got a cute story for you. As you know, I was the drummer for the Mario Bazaar for Cuban Jazz Orchestra, so in the band, Rudy Calzado, Mario's best friend, was the singer, mm -hmm. and he would play guido in the band sometimes, the scraped instrument. Human Gord, <laughs> he goes to me one day, we're at some bar or something in Europe, and he goes, you know, in Spanish, and everything sounds funny and more dramatic in Spanish, you, you remind me of this crazy guy I knew in L.A. They used to play in the conjunto I had when I was in L.A. And I go, what's his name? He goes, I don't know, I don't remember. But he played trumpet, he was really good. But one day that guy, he asked me, hey, how do you play the guido in 7-4? 
and, and I told them, and uh, Rudy says, I told them, listen, 7-4, I'll show you how to play it in 4-4. You can figure out how to play it in 7-4. I go, it's got to be Don Ellis, right? Yeah. He goes, Don Ellis, that's the guy. <laughs> Who else would have asked a question like that? <laughs> yeah. So it's a trip. But that's why Don would dress dress okay. in white because of it, the influence of playing in, in Cuban-oriented yeah. Latin salsa bands in L.A. And the multiple drummers, mm -hmm. that's also from from that yeah. as well. Um, so are you guys tonight, are you going to be playing tunes that you did on the Vox Humana album? I'm curious. No, no. We're going to be playing repertoire associated with with my with Ascension, with okay. my small group. Gotcha. Yeah. So it'll run the gamut from the past, present, and future <laughs> of the music. I always say my head is in the past. Uh... Uh, I'm, no, I'm always looking toward the past for inspiration, uh, uh, here in the present, and looking toward the, fu the future when I look to the other side of me. So. Well, I have to say, when, in listening to the Vox Humana album, um, the tune selection, I mean, the Caravan, you know, killer arrangement. But then you like, you and, go, well, the, on that arrangement, we use three Port Afro Puerto Rican rhythms. There's no. Cuban rhythms on that arrangement. And I wanted to do that because Rafael Hernandez, the composer, was Puerto Rico's greatest composer and Latin America's most beloved composer. So he's Puerto Rican. Mm. So why not utilize the rhythms from his ancestral and my own ancestral homeland? And he has a connection to jazz because he played trombone in James Reese Europe's U.S. Army the U.S. Army 369th Regimental Band in World War One, mm -hmm. which was the first band, it was an all-black regiment. James Reese Europe was the commander of the band, uh, Lieutenant James Reese Europe, and he, that band, was the first to expose <coughs> European audiences to black American music mm. in a concert band setting. Right. And there were... At full strength, the band was 65. 44 went to Europe, and 18 of them, oddly enough, were Puerto Ricans. Hmm. And Rafael Hernandez was one of the Puerto Rican recruits, and he played trombone in the band. Hmm. So that's his connection to jazz. Okay. And Noble Sissel, who was the, uh, the drum major and also the vocalist in the band, he was put in charge of the Puerto Ricans by James Reese Europe, when they were training, and Noble Sister goes, I don't speak Spanish. He goes, don't worry, your personality, and you'll be able to communicate with them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he became friends with many of the, them, those who stayed in New York after the war. Well, Noble got them work. For example, Rafael played trombone with Lucky Roberts, the stride pianist. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when... Musicians from Cuba and Puerto Rico would come to New York City. They would wind up in Harlem, and they were all told, go see Noble Sissel. Mm. He'll hook you up. Mm -hmm. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah. Um, so Mario Balzar, the father of Afro-Cuban jazz, he was uh, with the Machito Orchestra. He, uh, he, when he came from Cuba, right away he hooks up with Noble Sissel in Harlem, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So these are things that, it's unfortunate, the Ken Burns documentary did not address any of these things. And right. part of my mission, too, 
and I'm glad you're giving me a platform to talk, is to uncover those hidden layers of the contributions of Latin musicians to the history of jazz. Absolutely. Because so, uh, uh, jazz would not exist without the contributions of musicians from uh, Latin America, particularly the Caribbean. Yeah. And they come together in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. So the reason, and then somebody viewing might say, well, why? How come they don't come out with, again, racism, colonialism, cultural right. insensitivity, right. and uh, ignorance. Mm -hmm. And But I don't, that argument of ignorance, I don't, I don't buy that as an excuse because you could, it's your job to find out, to ask the questions. Right. Like you're having me here and asking me. So. Right. But uh, yeah, so uh, Rafael Hernandez with that arrangement of Caravan, in the beginning starts off with plena, with those jingleless frame drums. Mm -hmm. It's a hard driving rhythm. It, it's known as a musical newspaper because you could march with those jingleless frame drums hmm. and when you sing, you're singing about what's happening in the neighborhood, so you mm -hmm. go through the neighborhood. Okay, yeah. Then it goes to uh, uh, Bomba Sica, that rhythm I tapped yeah. out before, and then it goes to Yuba, which is another Bomba rhythm, and I'm going to uh, uh, do that Tresillo again, but as one of the things about our music, which is part of jazz rhythm, the jazz rhythmic concept is, that you can utilize, you can superimpose rhythms from six, eight meter, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, and superimpose them in four, four, and vice versa. Right. Like right. this, which everybody would call the swing rhythm on the ride symbol. This is not really in four, four. This is really in one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, 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 one, three, one, two, three. So the Yuba yeah. has this. So you could think of this as one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five. Right. And on top of the dr that, the barrel drums are going. So that those three rhythms right. are in that arrangement. So that's when we're talking about using things outside of the canon of Cuban rhythms, right. which most people know, know or study down. But there's a lot of food for thought in all of the different rhythms from the Caribbean. And that's an example of that in Caravan. They would always drive me nuts, especially growing up, trying to read through things that may have been written supposedly in a swing style, but not done very well. And they would right. always write the dotted 8 16th. And I'm like, how <coughs> You know why? Because everybody, the, the way musical notation evolved in terms of the United States, mm -hmm. you're talking about Europeans coming the European in and they're writing everything in, from marches. Right. And they're trying to adapt writing in 2-4 time mm -hmm. to this African, Caribbean uh, rooted right. feel. Right. And it isn't until the, the 30s when they, try, when they finally figured that out, right. especially when writing for big bands. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you got uh, Ragtime, which yeah. is what, the, what James Reese Europe and the Harlem Hellfighters, that was the nickname of the uh, unit because right. they fought so ferociously. They were mm -hmm. the most decorated unit in World War I. Right. The Germans called them fighters you know, from hell. You know? mm -hmm. So uh, 
they got the nickname Harlem Hellfighters. So the uh, their, what they played was ragtime adapted to a concert band setting. Mm -hmm. So it isn't jazz. People would say, oh, the Harlem Hellfighters, they were the first jazz band to play in Europe. I said, no, they're not jazz, because to have jazz, you have to have improvisation. improvisation yeah. Ragtime is all written out. Right. But they used all of the vocabulary of jazz, swing feel, mm -hmm. ornamentation, bending the, the of structure, notes, the musical yeah, structure, blues yeah. licks, right. all that from the black vernacular that was completely different than what Europeans were used to. And the story goes that when they played in, uh, in Britain, the band directors there were listening to the band, they thought they had trick instruments. Yeah. <laughs> Because they're using wah-wah effects, right, oh, right. things they had never heard of. Right. And James Reese should have told them, no, no, here, we can give you some of the music. You can rehearse it tonight yourselves. They couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. They said, we can't do it because they didn't understand African-American culture. Right. So, so I like how I have some friends in New York from New Orleans. Uh, and <laughs> whenever they see something that's deep, they, they always say, yo, man, that's culture, you know. That, well, you, you know, playing music in New Orleans for so many years, especially if I'm doing something in a trad, traditional style, you, and, and having grown up playing ragtime piano, right? to see the, uh, the structures, you know, if you play High Society or Panama or any of those tunes, but you see the 16-bar uh, the structures uh, right. right out of ragtime. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating to me. Ragtime fascinates me because it's so difficult what you guys do playing ragtime. I mean, oh, the, the piano chops, it's like... Oh, yeah, that's a whole different beast, but yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the syncopations come straight from Africa, through the, but through the Caribbean right. to New Orleans. So, And then the influence of the Cuban danzón mm -hmm. and the Puerto Rican danza and the French-Haitian Af uh, francophone contra-dance, you know, it's all in there. We say in the Bronx, it's all in there like a bag. It's all that in a bag of chips. You know? <laughs> I always found it interesting. You, uh, there's a great, uh, this, I think it's, it's Alan Lomax's interview with Jelly Roll Morton. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard that, but, it's, but I love how he talks. And he, and he talks in a certain vernacular being right, that right. age. But he always says, well, it's not jazz if it doesn't have the Spanish tinge. Yeah. When he met Spanish, he met the, the Latino Caribbean mm -hmm. tinge. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate. It's like in New York City, an African American person would say, you know, they met a Cuban or Puerto Rican, or Dominican, or mm -hmm. oh yeah, he's Spanish, <laughs> right. and I have to the, tell them because we speak Spanish. I go, but I'm not Spanish because I have to educate them. I said, no, what you're saying really is I'm from Spain. I'm not from Spain. You know, right. You know, right. so but that's what Jelly Roll Morton meant. Yeah. It's uh, but he, he was a out. Oh, check this out. Mario Bazar were playing in Copenhagen, a concert. It's us, the Louis Belson Orchestra, and the mm. Cap Calloway Orchestra, oh, wow. a concert. And Mario Bazar played trumpet with the Cap Calloway Orchestra in 1938 and 39. So they're talking. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a file, so I'm like, oh, man, I wonder what they're talking about. So I sit there. Within five minutes, there must have been 100 cats mm. listening to them. Roy Hargrove is next to me. Oh, really? Yeah. All these cats. And Mario, all of a sudden, they start talking about Jelly Roll Morton. And they go, yeah, remember when we used to play poker with him? 
He used to cheat all the time because he had a card up here and he got a card in his shoe. Right, know? right. And I go and I'm going, my God, these these guys played poker with Jelly Roll Morton. Right. I can't believe it, man. Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. So I started asking Mario about Jelly Roll Morton. I'm sure he had stories. Other. Yeah. And he told me he, that he could speak a little French and he could speak a little Spanish. So you know, and he was always tr- trying to get up, get one up on you, mm-hmm. and what and. Of course, he, he he played in bordellos, man, and then he's, you got to watch your back. You got and everybody's trying to, you know, take you take you for a ride, and you try to take them for a ride. Man, you know? You know, one thing I noticed in that Lomax interview because it's long. I mean, it's he's basically talking about the history of early New Orleans jazz. But I in reading about the interview, he was given Jelly Roll whiskey. <laughs> to get him to talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, Jelly, he would talk about what you'd ask him about whatever to him, make me a pallet on the floor, and he'd tell him, tell him the story about that, you know, and then he plays. Right. And by the end of it, you could tell in the way Jelly Roll's talking now, he's a little lit up. Right. And his playing gets better. Right. I mean, right. he's playing the stride piano. I mean, he's if you would have saw it, smoke would have been coming off. It was unbelievable. He, and he's loaded. He's, he's, <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. It's like what you guys say. Uh, <laughs> You know, tight and loose. Yeah. Loose and tight. You know, <laughs> you yeah. know so, so yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I, I have to check that out then, you know. But yeah. <laughs> I would have loved to talk with him because for every Jelly Roll Morton, <clears throat> there must be like 10 other pianists that never got heard of. He would talk there. to that point. He would mention names you've never heard of. And, and you know, such, such such died when he was 30 in a gun, you know, gunfight or something stupid, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, he, you know, cats like... They'll say, you know, those oh, the older cats usually always say, if you think I'm a badass, mm-hmm. you should heard of this cat, right. this, 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 that, and the other. Yeah. And, well, you know, I- these hidden things in terms of the history of this music, that's why the elders have to be uh, interviewed, documented. Mm-hmm. And, and the younger generation of players are obviously much more educated. A lot more the, resources, for sure. The music has been codified right. to a certain extent. Not not in not in 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 my opinion, not in the best way, but it has been codified. And the reason I say that is because they always leave out our contributions mm-hmm. to it. But as long as there's people like myself alive, they speak, getting an opportunity to speak, and I thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, the message will get out. And some of these uh, hidden uh, parts of the history will get, have some light shed on them. But it's always. Uh, the older cats, you got to give them the, their respect and props. Mm-hmm. The younger generation, you know, because of the contributions of the past, of the elders, they got a lot more chops. They, they, they got a lot more harmonic knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the, the elders have something that you cannot uh, quantify and it comes out in their playing, which is the experience, the yeah. life experience. Right. The, uh, the, the, I've seen some older cats cut a younger cat on horns, you know, like just a couple of notes. Right. I, I saw yeah. that one time I was, I was in a festival in uh, Switzerland and young sax player on stage. And at, t- at that particular festival that, that summer, Plas Johnson was there, you know, the, the saxophone player for Henry Mancini, Pink yeah. Panther, you know, but played on so many 
incredible albums with Ella and the list goes on. But he did exactly that, just like played one phrase with that tone and that gravitas and what he played. And it's like, that's all you wanted to hear after that. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's like I tell my students, listen, you want to find out if your, your stuff is righteous? Play in front of a black audience, huh. an older black audience. Right. If it doesn't resonate, you know. They'll, they'll tell you right away. Mm -hmm. Yo, man, you're talking a lot. You're not saying anything. Right. You know, try playing something together now. Right. <laughs> right. Some of the funniest stuff I've heard. Uh, but they'll give it up to you no matter what color you are, what race you are, whatever. If they hear the truth, yeah. uh, it's 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 a, it, it, what you for the younger players that are watching this if there are any younger players watching this what you want is profundity in your playing mm. profundity I like that something that says that is profound and says something mm. and the way you get that is by living life yeah so be patient be patient you, to that point I heard a funny story um, I guess somebody was I want to say maybe it was Michael Brecker or somebody like that not for sure it was him, but anyway, he's talking to a, a bunch of students, and he's like, okay, how many of you guys in here practice um, two hours a day? You know, and some raise their hand. How many of y'all practice four hours a day? And proudly, you know, he says, how many of you guys practice like seven, eight hours a day? And like, you know, he says, you people need to stop that, and you need to go out and live a life. You know, you yeah, yeah. and I know what he's talking about. You, you got to live life, you know. Yes, yeah. you have to practice, but you got to live life. And there's a thing I find with a lot of the younger players today of today is that they're, they're, they don't have enough blues vocabulary mm. in their playing. Yeah. It all comes from the blues. There's, you know, people say, oh, yeah, jazz. It's, impro it's, it's improvisation on a virtuosic. Yeah, but it's different because than improvisation in any other style of music. Every culture on this planet improvises. Mm -hmm. Eskimos singing their chants improvise. You know, everybody, even the European, in the European classical tradition, the, the art of the cadenza. Right, true. Now people write them, you know, but in the old days, you yeah. had to improvise. Right. Okay? But the improvisation in jazz is coming from the black experience. And it, the black experience is the blues. The blues. That is the... Prof most profound identity marker of uh, of jazz yeah. in terms of improv improvising, right. and a lot of younger cats tend to forget that. So uh, that's my advice for you today. And it's a drummer <laughs> saying that. So, <laughs> so, and you can get that on the drums too. Mm -hmm. You can get it. You can get it. You know, listen to the cats, Blakey, Max. Yeah. And then the modern players of today, uh, Kenny, Kenny Washington, oh, Wash, yeah. Yeah. my man, you know. He, he, so I, I mean, uh, and, and a lot of other Lewis, Lewis Nash, mm -hmm. all these cats. I mean, and then in terms of the the Latin music traditions, man, Maestro Tito Puente, Mongo Santa Maria. We, we mentioned Willie Bobo, Armando Perazza, all these cats. You know. The, the, the rhythmic, they're rhythmic geniuses. Tito is in the class by himself because he was a composer and arranger and mm -hmm. a vibist and marimbist. And he played alto saxophone and clarinet right. as well. So there you go. Well, you, we're talking a lot about, you know, the, I guess the educational component 
of carrying this music on, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the Bronx Music Heritage Center and what you what you do there and what's happening. Oh, fantastic! Thank you for asking. Uh, it's a it's a nonprofit that run the parent organization is called Wetco Women's Housing Economic Development Corporation. It was founded uh, by Nancy Bieberman, uh, about uh, who was a he's is a very very famous housing lawyer. And if you want to hear and see what Nancy looks like, look at the Ken Burns documentary. She was a student at Columbia University when they took over, the, the students took over the, uh, the college in protest of the Vietnam War and okay. in protest of Columbia University investing in South African gold, man, gold mines and diamond mines. Right. She talks, she's a featured talking head mm -hmm. in that documentary. She found that women were being disenfranchised in housing court in the South Bronx. So she got a consortium of people together. For a dollar, she bought the old Morrisenia Hospital in the South Bronx, which was abandoned by the city and shut down. And I used to go to that hospital. My parents used to take me mm -hmm. when I was a kid. She refurbished it with public funding, et cetera, and private funding, made it into beautiful, accessible apartments, then built another apartment building on Lewis 9 Boulevard, which used to be called Freeman Street in the South Bronx. It has about 180 apartments. And has recently built another massive uh, 305 apartment complex of affordable housing. And in there, I'll talk about it in a second, is a, is a theater that's forthcoming. But in the 180 uh, apartment building, on the ground floor is a small art gallery space and she got myself and my partner in life, Elena Martinez, the noted folklorist and cultural anthropologist, to be the artistic directors there for the last 10 years. In a small space that holds about 80 people, we've been having concerts representing every culture of the, that's found in the Bronx, from Jewish culture, Irish culture, Malaysian culture, uh, Ghanaian, Yoruba, Congo culture, Haitian culture, I mean, forget about it. We've done it all. Yeah. We've had uh, profound, profound panel discussions there on everything from stop and frisk to the uh, uh, migration of the Jewish community to the Bronx, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, in any case, I've shown fantastic movies there for the community at f for free or low cost. We have piano classes there. We have uh, capoeira classes, Brazilian capoeira classes there. We have mambo uh, classes there. I say mambo because I don't like to use that word salsa. <laughs> but we have what's known as salsa dance classes there. So we do so many things. And now uh, we're going to be moving from there to a 250-seat theater that's almost completed uh, close by in the South Bronx in the Melrose section, which the neighborhood I grew up in in the South Bronx. It's a 250-seat theater. That's the seats are movable, so we could have 100 seats. We could have just tables there. We could have just plain open with no chairs. The tables have like a rock concert setting thing there. On the outside of the theater is a, a brick, uh, a cement stage that we've been doing concert, outdoor concerts already there. Holds about 150 people. And in the back, there's a small amphitheater behind the enclosed theater that holds about 80 people. Hmm. So, and we have this gigantic 
entrance foyer, I guess you would say, uh, that uh, uh, that we're going to be doing art gallery showings and mm. various well-known artists. And we have also a dance studio that we're going to be using as a rehearsal studio. So y'all are well. hitting all the art forms. That, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, we we have we've oh, in the Bronx Music Heritage Center we've done dance there of different all the different cultures yeah. that exist in the Bronx. Our mission is to get all of the cultures in the Bronx, give them a voice, and show that the Bronx is this borough. You know, really, the first place where integration started was not in Alabama or mm. Atlanta or whatever. Well. The first place, really, where integration starts is in New Orleans. Right, right, right. <laughs> but in terms of the mainstream, is the Bronx. Yeah. Um, Morris High School, where General Colin Powell graduated mm -hmm. from, <coughs> and where my father first went for his freshman year when he came from Puerto Rico, when he migrated. And I'm specific about that, because we're not immigrants. Puerto Ricans are not immigrants, we're migrants, because mm -hmm. we, we've been U.S. citizens since 1917. Right. So Morris High School was the most integrated high school in the United States in uh, the 1950s. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that or choose to forget that or whatever. Or, uh, but it all comes together in the Bronx, just like in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Every time I go to New Orleans, uh, I said, man, this is the Bronx. <laughs> right. But, you know, we're more of a southern... Caribbean flair, obviously, and French flair. So, uh, you know, on a side note, I've always thought that when you're on the um, the West Bank part of New Orleans, there's an accent there that now I'm not from the Bronx, but on the surface, it seems like it's kind of connected. There's a similar accent. Yeah, it's funny. I met somebody at the airport in New Orleans when I got off. I asked them a question, and uh, they, when she smiled, because I saw I was, you're from New York, right? And I says, yeah, I'm from New Orleans, but they say I got a, they got a, I got a New York accent. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> she must be from that part. I think yeah. so. Yeah. 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 So, we're very excited about this, and it's going to be great. Yeah. We've actually, I forgot the name of the band. We had a second line band at the Bronx Music Heritage Center. Okay. I forgot the name of them, uh, but we had one. Yeah. And it was great. They, and as part of it, I told them you got to do a little lecture mm -hmm. about the music, the roots of it, and they did. Right. Right. So a lot of kids that were there, they were, wow, you know. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, and I hip them to some of the things that I, I just talked about before, those rhythms right. that are common right. to, to New York City through Cuba and Puerto Rico and, and Haiti. So, so we're very excited about what the forthcoming year. Yeah. I'm excited for you. Yeah, thank That's you. Awesome. Thank you. So that place is called the Bronx Music Hall. And... Uh, you can go to our Facebook page, Bronx Music Heritage Center, and see all the things that we're doing right now. And video, we have a, a YouTube page, a YouTube mm -hmm. channel. Just go to Bronx Music Heritage Center, and you'll see all of these things that we've done over the last uh, 10 years. We've been documenting all of that. Now, and you have a long time history on the radio. Well, at this point, it's about six years, uh -huh. seven years on uh, WBGO, which uh, I would say it's, yeah, it's the leading jazz station in the United States, yeah. along with Kuvo in Arizona and K-Jazz. I, I don't know if they still call it K-Jazz out in Los Angeles. And uh, my show is called The Latin Jazz Cruise, uh, 
and it's on from four to six uh, every Saturday, mm -hmm. Eastern time. If you don't, that would be three three p.m. here. If you can't listen in real time, just go to the archive. Yeah. Afterwards, type in WBGO Latin Jazz C R U I S E Cruise, and it'll pop up the archive for the last two weeks. Yeah. So it's my way of I have another I have a platform to educate the public, which I do because when they asked me to do it, the previous host, Wilda Rivera, had done it for 26 years. A host before her had done it for 10 years, Alfredo Cruz, and the founder was a gentleman by the name of Chico Mendoza, who was a vibes and pianist from Newark. His real name was Irv Roberts, but he's African-American. He changed his name to Chico Mendoza to perform in the Latin scene in New York. Oh, really? And he had a great band that everybody should check out called Ocho. O-C-H-O, -O, which means eight. Mm -hmm. and it, they were all African-Americans, except for the singer, Manny Roman, who was uh, Puerto Rican. And they did like three or four albums. Mm -hmm. Very good. It was a different kind of salsa band because instead of trumpets or and trombones or just trombones, they would use saxes. Mm. It was just a sax section. Oh, so no brass? No brass at all. Mm. Inter it was interesting sound. You could tell right away it was them. Everybody knew it was them because yeah. of that sound. Right. And all the musicians were African-American, but they loved Cuban rhythms, mm. Cuban music. So uh, he founded the show, and it was at an, on, on at an ungodly hour, like 5 in the morning on Sundays. I would, cats, we would, after gigs, we would just sit in the car mm -hmm. and wait till it would come on or not go to sleep in, after gigs. And in those days in New York City, the top salsa bands would do three gigs in one night. A set at one club, go to another club, do another set, go, and then go to another club for a third set or to an after hours. Hmm. After hours were clubs in New York City that started at four in the morning <laughs> or three in the morning, and they'd right. go to eight in the morning. Right. So it was a, it was a pretty interesting scene back then. Right. Well, I think it's wonderful. Um, your passion for, I mean, obviously you're an amazing musician with an amazing history, but also the passion for carrying it on and educating because there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So I Thank think you. whenever okay. a person like you has various platforms to, to par parlay all this information, I think that's wonderful. Thanks. I have to thank public a Amy Niles, who at the time was the program director. She asked me, uh, we were doing a concert with my quartet at 4WBGO, a lunchtime concert in Newark. And she, I want to talk to you. And she asked me if I was interested. I said, wow, let me think about it because I'm busy. And then I finally thought about it and I said, I told her, look, I'll do it if you let me educate the audience. And she goes, that's why I'm asking you to do it. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, but kind of become known like I w the way I was demonstrating some of the rhythms now I do that on the air <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll right. tap I'll clap and uh, occasionally I've done the show live but most of the time I tape it beforehand because I'm I, and that's another thing I asked I, I have to be able to have the freedom of taping it beforehand because I'm a working musician mm -hmm. I've sometimes taped the show you know from a hotel room mm-hmm mm -hmm. Like uh, now with the technology that's available, yeah, you can do it now. You can do it. <laughs> so so uh, yeah. So it's been fruitful. I would suggest everybody also go to the WBGO website 
because there's numerous articles that I've written, unfortunately on musicians that have passed on, hmm. but uh, they're very informative. Yeah. Like, ex for example, the article that I wrote on Candido, the great father of modern conga drumming, and EA, National Endowment of the Arts Jazz Master, a lengthy article is on the website. Yeah. So uh, I've written articles on Jorge Santana, Carlos Santana's brother when he passed, Larry Harlow, the great Jewish Brooklyn-born mm -hmm. salsa pianist, composer, ranger, band leader. Larry is responsible for the, the basic format of a contemporary salsa band, which is two trombones, two trumpets. He was the first band leader to do that. Yeah. So, uh, and his roots in Cuban music, well, he fell in love with <laughs> He was a student at the then called Music and Art High School. Today it's called the LaGuardia High School for the Performing Arts. Mm -hmm. But back then it was called Music and Art and it was on 138th Street and Convent Avenue up in Harlem. And he would travel from Brooklyn to go to that school, a very prestigious school. You have to audition mm -hmm. to get in. And he's, as he told me, he would hear from the bodegas, Latin music coming out of them. And mm -hmm. he got fascinated by it. An African-American band leader, Hugo Dickens, was another lost person in, in mm -hmm. the history of this music. Played alto and tenor saxophone. And he had a band made up of mostly Jewish and black musicians that played Latin music and big band swing and some R&B. Yeah. That was an entry-level position gig for a lot of great musicians on the scene, like Barry Rogers, the great trombonist, who's the, the father of the New York City power trombone salsa sound, mm -hmm. which has its roots in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. You know, very powerful in your face, right, right. blues oriented in his soloing. Yeah. Larry was the first guy to use blues licks in his solos on trombone. Yeah. And a Jewish guy from the Bronx, even in Cuba, they study him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So Larry started getting into the Latin scene through Hugo Dickens. Bobby Porcelli, the great lead alto player, same thing, got his start playing with Hugo Dickens. And Larry Harlow, he auditions for the band. And as he told me, he was reading the stock arrangements that they had brought from Cuba. And he's playing what the music says. Right. But the parts were corny. And Hugo Dickens tells him, man, you don't know how to play this music. <laughs> I go, well, I'm reading exactly what's on the, nah, man. You got to, you know, so he tells, I forgot the name of the gentleman, an Italian guy in his class that played trumpet. And he's, that Italian guy starts showing him about clave. He writes it out. Mm. An Italian guy telling him really? about clave. <laughs> <laughs> then he goes, well, who should I listen to? And he goes, Doro Morales, mm. you know, uh, Peruching. He's writing. So he goes to a record store and he tells the guy, I know one name, Peruching. Anybody else? And he starts pulling out records for him. And he starts realizing, oh, what they're doing on the recordings, which is the chord. It might be a C minor chord, but they're arpeggiating it. Mm -hmm. So instead of just playing the chord block position, they're arpeggiating it. The Montuno is actually the chord structure. Guajeo is when you arpeggiate. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So some in the old school, hey, 
come on, oye, toca el guajeo, you know, en, en montuno. The montuno is the vamp. The guajeo is the actual way you arpeggiate. Okay. Those old school terms. Yeah. Hardly anybody uses anymore. So that's how Larry got into the music. And then he goes to Cuba as his bar mitzvah gift. He goes to Cuba as a teenager, falls in love with the music. And he goes back the second time with a webcore tape recorder and stays there for about two years studying the music, yeah. going to the University of Havana. And across the street, as he told me, was a luncheonette diner where all the musicians used to hang out called Fania. And Jerry, that's where he meets Jerry Masucci. So that's how that all started, the, the Fanny All-Stars? Yeah. Jerry Masucci was a lawyer working for the tourism board in Cuba. And he meets Jerry there. When Jerry comes back to New York, as Larry did, they all had to leave because Fidel comes in. Jerry actually stayed and worked for the tourism board for a little while. By 1962, he says, I, I got to come back to New York. When he starts the record company with Johnny Pacheco, a Dominican who was raised in the South Bronx flute player who had played bongo with Tito Puente, formed his own charanga orchestra mm -hmm. playing flute. He, uh, um, Johnny was dissatisfied, Johnny Pacheco, with Allegra Records, who was founded by a gentleman by the name of Al Santiago, who was a tenor sax player who had a band called the Chacanuno Boys, but he had a record store in the South Bronx on the corner of Westchester, Longwood, and Prospect. Yeah. And became a, his record company were the first to put out Eddie Palmieri's music, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Johnny Pacheco's music. He forms the Alegre All-Stars based off of the Descarga uh, uh, Cuban Jam Session albums in Cuba. But Al had one problem. He was making a lot of money with his recordings, but he was bipolar. But nobody kn knew how to treat bipolarism at the time. Mm -hmm. So he disappeared when he was going through his depressed stage. Johnny got tired of dealing with that. When he meets Jerry, who's helping him with a divorce, he tells him, and, he goes, hey, I want, and Jerry says, I want to form a record company. And they joined forces. And with 5,000 bucks borrowed but from Jerry's mother, they formed Farnia Records, named after that luncheon at right. time, because he wanted it to be like a family. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, as Spock would say, fascinating. And the rest <laughs> is history. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, man, uh, I could talk to you for hours, uh, but I know you have a sound check and a gig tonight. Well, invite me again down here. I will. We'll, we'll, ha we'll hang will. some more and talk more about the history. And, and uh, I just uh, love coming down here. This is really the first time I'm in Baton Rouge because I've always yeah. been in New, or <coughs> New Orleans. But I meet a lot of guys that for, are from Baton Rouge mm -hmm. that play in New Orleans. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, it's just the vibe here is it's just – I know they call New Orleans the Big Easy, mm -hmm. but the people here are, are so warm and kind and everything. And just the accent, man. What I love about you guys is the accent just brings you in it's very inviting, and you could tell the people really, when they say hello to you, yeah, they mean it. Right, right. Like, hey, it's like welcome, brother. You know, right. You know, mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. So, uh, uh, thank you for inviting me here. Absolutely, Bobby. And um, two weeks from now, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be pulling for you, Grammy. Oh, the right. Grammy's February fourth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see what yeah. happens. 
my son asked me, Roberto Jose, who's actually an actor, a very good actor in New York City, <laughs> Pop, what are you going to say if you lose again? Because <laughs> this, this is the ninth time we're nominated. But I mean, just I, that, I, just I, that is I, an I, honor. I told man. him, Such I said, I said, son, I'm going to say the same thing if I win. And he goes, what's that? He goes, I don't freaking believe it. <laughs> there you go. The Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge would like to acknowledge our generous sponsors, the Shell Corporation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Louisiana Office of Cultural Development, and the City of Baton Rouge. 